Well, hello, everybody. For those who don't know me, I'm James Carroll. I'll be giving the forum today. Uh, I'm excited to talk about a book I read recently that was just so interesting and fascinating to me. I wanted to talk about some of the ideas it sparked, and not all of them, obviously, because in 45 minutes, I want to explain everything there is to know about the meaning of intelligence, the evolution of intelligence, the nature of consciousness, the origins of technology, and the survival of mankind, and I'm going to do that all in about 45 minutes. Since we all know that's not going to happen, maybe I'll make you interested enough to go get this otherwise rather obscure book that I never would have read if my wife hadn't said, I'm really interested in animals and, and animal intelligence. Let's read this book together. So we did, and, oh, I loved it. It was one of the neatest things i would ever done. But anyway... Before I dive into all those other really complicated subjects that I'm going to cover all in 45 minutes, I'm going to go further afield and talk about aliens and Fermi. Enrico Fermi was, um, the, was a researcher at Los Alamos National Laboratory, so he should be sort of familiar to this particular group of people. And one day he was out to lunch with a bunch of his friends, and they were chatting about aliens, of all things. I guess Area 51 was a fun topic at the time. I'm not sure. And while chatting about aliens, at some point somebody, you know, started talking about, well, what's the chances that aliens should be here and should have visited? And, and you know, Fermi wasn't, a, wasn't an idiot. And at some point he kind of went through the math and he just did a back-of-the-envelope calculation. And he looked up at his friends and says, where is everybody? Because he realized that they probably haven't visited us or we would know. And they should have. His back-of-the-envelope calculation, he was actually fairly famous for these back-of-the-envelope, get-close sort of math problems. There's actually a whole genre called Fermi problems that my my teacher was fond of giving us. You know, how many many people live in Canada? Uh, You know, how many termites can fit on the end of a of a two-by-four, you know, something like this. And you're supposed to be able to figure it out just kind of on the back of the envelope and get the right magnitude. And he did this for the number of aliens in in the galaxy and kind of said... Something's broken. Where is everybody? Promise this will relate, sort of. Um, So this guy, Drake, did the same thing. This is his back-of-the-envelope calculation, and it essentially says, you know, the rate of formation of stars times the fraction of those stars with planets times the fraction of those with Earth-like planets times, um, you know, the fraction of those where life is created and the fraction of those that become intelligent and the fraction of those that are communicating times the length at which those civilizations survive and don't blow themselves up. And that's probably the number of communicating civilizations out there. We should be able to find them with SETI, was his conclusion. And there should be a lot of them, was, again, his conclusion by doing this sort of of back-of-the-envelope calculation. Um, Kepler has made the issue worse, uh, not better, because in November 4th, uh, 2013, the astronomers reported, based on Kepler space mission data, that there could be as many as 40 billion Earth-sized planets orbiting in the habitable zones of stars, of sun-like stars and red dwarf stars within the Milky Way, and 11 billion of those were probably around sun-like stars. So there's a lot of those planets out there. There's a lot of chances for life to exist. I mean, billion is a big number. There's 11 billion of them around sun-like stars, if you assume that's important. And there's 40 billion around, you know, red, red dwarf stars. That's even better, and, and maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. We don't know what's really needed for life to, to happen. We just know what happened here. And so... There's a lot of other chances for it to do what it did here. And if you think it could evolve in some other environment besides ours, things get even worse for the, you know, where is everybody question, at least. Um, 
And, and, and there's lots of reasons now. Uh, a lot of people become even more optimistic about finding at least bacterial life elsewhere because we found bacterial life living on Earth in places we never would have dreamed of, you know, in, in, in rivers and streams filled with, with um, arsenic and just all sorts of things we thought were poisonous, hot vents, all sorts of places that we thought were toxic, and life finds a way to live there. So things got even worse. So now we got this 40 billion to 11 billion times these last pieces, and that's what we still don't know. So, so I'm going to ask four questions, or there are four relevant questions to finish out this equation, and that is, how common is life to have formed at all on a given planet, uh, given that it has a planet, I mean. So how common is life to have formed on a planet like the Earth? Uh, how common is intelligence? How common is technology in that intelligence? And then how long will we survive? as a species without blowing ourselves up. Um, there's only one we can really talk about uh, using the Earth as a sample point. So I'm a statistician. I like, to, I like to play with statistics, and I'm also very interested in low sample statistics. What do you do with your uncertainty when your sample rate is really low? And in this case, our sample rate is really, really low. We have the Earth. And so uh, how common is intelligence is the only one we can really answer from this uh, experiment. And the reason for that is because uh, we have a sample bias. In other words, every species who wonders how many other species are out there will be in a sample with already one sample there. Now, that's just a, a fancy way of saying we're already here. That's why we're asking the question. We really need to throw ourselves out of the sample. The problem is we're the only positive example we have of a technological sample. And we throw ourselves out. Now we have zero samples. We don't know. Essentially, you can't tell anything because you don't even have one sample, which is even worse than having one. One is really bad. None is even worse. But here we can answer some, some questions a little bit because technology, we're the only one. But here, if there are other intelligent species on the planet, then we can assess the probability of intelligence arising given life is arisen. Because I can't figure out how common life is because it only happened once and we're part of that tree, so we have to throw it out. I can't tell about technology because we're part of that tree. It's the sample bias. We have to throw it out. Um, how long we survive, we don't know because we haven't blown ourselves up yet. Uh, so we can't really sample from that very well. But we can use this one. How common is it? So what I want to do is ask, I want to turn to the animal kingdom and ask the question, how common is intelligence in other animals? Now, that's an interesting question anyway. But here's maybe one motivation of why we might care. So... What, but before you can figure out how common intelligence is, you have to figure out what it means to be smart. What does it mean for something to be intelligent? And usually we think of someone like Albert Einstein. Obviously, he's intelligent, so intelligence must be something like Albert Einstein. The person on the left is a Mormon apologist. His name is Hugh Nibley. He speaks about, I think at last count, was something like 40 languages. Very smart in that regard, but he spent most of his time defending the Mormon church. Which, makes, which raises certain questions about what does intelligence mean? Well, he defined intelligence. He said intelligence is problem-solving ability. And I think that's actually the best definition of intelligence I've ever seen from anybody. So I'm going to just stick with the Mormon apologist's definition of what it means to be intelligent. Problem-solving ability. The thing is, he was trying to define intelligence in the context of Mormon scripture. And in Mormon scripture, there's these verses about how you know, God grants intelligence to those, and God is intelligent and, and, and spreads intelligence. There's lots of references to intelligence in Mormon scripture. And he was trying to define it there, and he said, 
The problem with defining intelligence as problem-solving ability is that the very next question is, well, what problem are you trying to solve? And you can solve lots of problems. For example, one person might be really good at solving math problems, and another person might be really good at solving interpersonal relationship problems. One person becomes a very good therapist. The other person becomes a very good mathematician. One works at the lab. One helps the people who work at the lab not have mental breakdowns. And which one is more intelligent? Again, it's really easy to define the Albert Einstein as the definition of intelligence, but that's not the only problem we might want to solve. Nibley thought that the intelligence problem we were trying to solve was the terrible questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And what is the meaning and purpose of life? In other words, for him, intelligence was all about, as defined again in the, in the scriptures, was all about answering the questions of the purpose, finding meaning and purpose in life. It's one of the, the UU principles, right? We want to discover um, a, a responsible, free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And so for him, that was what intelligence means. But from an evolutionary perspective, evolution could care less if you have meaning in your life. It wants to make sure you survive and your genes survive. So intelligence is problem-solving ability, and the problem evolution wants to solve is survival. You can survive in lots of ways. One of the ways you can survive is you can make yourself a really big brain and become intelligent in that way. The problem is, really big brains are expensive. We take in about a quarter of the calories we take in are used to fuel our big brains. That's expensive, and evolution would love to, to cut half of that out. If evolution could get rid of half of our brains, it would be very happy because we wouldn't have to eat nearly as much. Intelligence isn't the goal of evolution. Survival is. And if you can survive with less intelligence you will happily do so. In fact, if you track the evolutionary path of bacteria, and especially parasites, they are dumb, and they are simple. And evolution gets rid of every bit of complexity it can when it doesn't need it, and parasites don't need it. But hunters and gatherers and animals who go out into the wild and, and have to solve unique environmental situations to get at their food, they need a bigger brain in order to survive. And so evolution favors larger brains only when they're needed and only to the extent that they're needed and smaller in brains and simpler organisms when it can get away with it. So that would kind of lead you to believe that maybe intelligence is rare. And in fact, the vast majority of living organisms, if you just kind of sum up by bio weight, like take all the bacteria in the universe, pile them up on a really big scale and weigh them and then pile up all the humans on top of each other on a really big scale and weigh us, we're dwarfed. Evolution prefers this simpler design, bacteria, has out-survived and out-competed us and continues to do so and probably will continue to do so forever. So evolution prefers bacteria over us. We think of ourselves as the dominant species on the planet, and we are not. Ants out-compete us as well turns out. There's a lot of animals that might surprise you that outcompete us in terms of just biomass. So if we think of evolution as starting with the genesis, and that's that point I can't assess the probability of, but we think there was only one on the earth so far, and then spreads out, and the further out you go in radius, the further forward in time you go. 
So this is time scale, this direction, and evolution fans out this way, and we sit you know, way over here. And we've drawn ourselves on this corner, but really we're just in the middle. There's no reason to put us on one end or the other of this, of this uh, scale. And over here are some more complex animals. Over here are the bacteria. And you notice these bacteria and protozoan dominate the tree. Again, it's not preferring complexity. <clears throat> However, evolution may not prefer complexity, but it might create complexity, and it might do so consistently and often including intelligent complexity. If there is a, a niche, so this is the concept of the niche, and that is, if all these uh, things over here are simple, and if they fill that niche, there might be an advantage to going and eating something that they can't eat, because there might be some food that a slightly more complex animal over here can eat, and a different way of surviving that these animals can, can do that these other ones can't. And so maybe if I spend a little bit to become more complex and more intelligent, I will outcompete the simpler ones. I won't outcompete the simpler ones, but I will find a new way of living as a complex organism. And that's why evolution has created, we tend to think of it as a linear thing that moved from protozoa to apes to us. Well, we're, that's one tree, one branch of this much larger tree. But maybe one of the reasons it created that branch of increasing complexity and intelligence is for this idea of to, to fit the niche. So how many other animals went down a niche? Because if I want to know how common that is, I want to know how many other animals found a niche that involved large brains, spending a lot of your metabolism on your brain, and, and therefore complex problem-solving at the expense of needing more food. That's how I'm going to define intelligence for this question of how many other animals do it. Large part of your metabolism going to feed a brain that is there to solve complex problems at the cost of needing more food input. Um, obviously, apes and chimps do this. So from, from my perspective, an ape and a chimp are, are both intelligent animals. You can, in fact, teach them sign language and start asking them questions. You've even asked them you know, philosophical questions, like, what happens when you die? And there was one great ape that they had taught sign language to who had a pet cat, and it died. And then they asked him where the cat was. And he began to speak about what he thought happened after death. It was fascinating. He started talking about being asleep and sleeping forever, and you know, some very interesting questions came up. So you can, you can actually talk to these animals if you teach them to communicate. They can communicate. They can do abstract thought. They can even cooperate to some extent. We cooperate better than they do. But they spend a huge amount of their metabolism on their brains, just like we do. Not as much as we do, but quite a bit. The problem with them as an independent sample is you can obviously make the argument that intelligence actually evolved once, not twice. It evolved once in the common ancestor of apes and humans, and then we just refined it. Now, if you make that argument, then unfortunately, the, the great apes and the chimps and the bonobos aren't an independent sample that you can actually say, well, look, intelligence happened twice. It's probably common. You can't do that if it's not an independent sample. So what you'd like to do is look further away on the tree of life. So you go to the dolphins. Dolphins are even smarter than most chimps. They can solve all sorts of problems. I mean, there's the, there's the famous kind of cliche of the military wants to train the dolphins to go disable mines or something. Uh, because you can train dolphins to do all sorts of incredibly complex things. You can teach them to talk, and you can speak to them, and you can ask them questions about their lives and their inner world. They're very intelligent animals. Um, again, they're not as intelligent. Well, they don't solve the same problems we do, but they communicate with each other, and frankly, they can understand our language, and we can't understand theirs. 
which maybe tells you something about who's smarter. Um, and they have culture. I mean, we've seen dolphins teach other dolphins neat ways of fishing, sometimes ways of fishing, fishing that require cooperation. In one case, they will herd fish into a, into a pool kind of all together because all the dolphins are coming from the other side until they herd the fish together. And then one dolphin will swim around the fish, slapping the bottom of the, of the, of the ocean floor with its tail, kicking up dirt until the fish can't see anymore and they jump out of this ring of dirt trying to, trying to escape. This is an inbred response in the fish. They jump out, and the dolphins sit around the ring with their mouths open, catching these fish as they jump into the dolphins' mouths. The thing is, this isn't a natural behavior for a dolphin in the sense, if you just take a random dolphin, it won't do this. The only dolphins who do this are ones who have seen other dolphins do it, which means they have culture, and they can, in that sense, they can teach each other new and novel ways of, of, of fishing and they can communicate that and teach it to others. It's not just an inborn kind of inbred skill. Um, I love watching sheepdogs. These guys are really intelligent. They like to herd sheep. And if you ever watch this, the, the, the sheepdog is very intelligent. And the, the interaction with the handler is fascinating because it involves communication, which is another thing we care about. But the problem is all these things, rats that we make run, mazes, horses that we love, but you know, can't really do math and stuff, and the chimps and the bonobos. You can actually teach a dolphin to do some basic adding and subtracting and math and symbolic reasoning. Um, all of these animals, though, are mammals. So again, we have the same problem with um, a, a, a non-independence of the sample. So one of the things you, can, you could say, now clearly the earliest mammal was not intelligent in the sense I defined large brain using most of its metabolism for intelligence. So that evolved independently and it evolved more than once in the mammal tree. So you can't make the argument you made with the apes that it evolved in our common ancestor. This evolved independently. However, you could make the argument that something in our evolutionary past made that, that is, is fairly rare. Maybe some event happened in our evolutionary past that is rare that paved the way for it to happen down multiple lines. So you could make that argument. Um, so it's still not a perfectly independent sample. Uh, my favorite, though, down the, um, one of my favorites, down the um, mammal line is the elephant. Um, the reason I love the elephant is because it's clear on the other side of the mammal line. So it's very distantly related to us, about as distantly related as you can get and still be a mammal. Uh, unless you start moving into the marsupials and the, and the platypuses. But as long as you stay a placental mammal, the elephant is about as far away from us as we can get. And yet it's very intelligent, um, but it's also incredibly social. If you've ever watched an elephant grieve for its partner, I'll talk about consciousness in a minute, because the same questions we're asking about intelligence, you can ask about consciousness. When an elephant dies, the herd, for all that I can describe, grieves. They seem to have a rich emotional life. And if you look at our brains, the sections of our brains that are involved in feeling grief, pleasure, pain, uh, fear, they have the same brain regions. And if you give them chemicals to re to, that we use to, say, um, resolve depression, they become less depressed. So you'd like to think that these animals love each other. They're social and they have some of the same inner lives that we have and some of the same emotional and conscious experiences that we do. But again, they're mammals. The real shock came when people started studying birds. And this is um, an experience that sort of floored people because birds are about, well, so I should have said that the, the apes branched from, or the humans and, and uh, chimps branched about six million years ago. 
um, you know, the mammals, let me go back and see if I can find my notes, 160 million years. So we went from 6 to 160 when we start talking about elephants and, and the like. But now we get to birds, we're at 320. Remember, birds evolved from dinosaurs. So you've got to go back before the evolution of the mammal to get a common ancestor with birds. Birds are dumb. In fact, everyone kind of concluded that birds are just really not very intelligent because they did all their experiments on pigeons. And pigeons are dumb. They really are. I mean, they're some of the dumbest animals that have ever walked the planet. I used to raise pigeons. Pigeons are dumb. Um, and then somebody started working with parrots. And the reason they started working with parrots is because people teach parrots to talk. And everyone thought parrot, you know, there's even this term in English, you parrot it, means you just repeat it back without knowing what it means. And someone asked the question, well, these parrots can make human-like speech. How much do they understand? And so this woman, Irene Maxine Pepperberg, did a, did a study on this um, that you should all go read, uh, except it's a, it's a scientific study. It's a collection of her papers, so, you know... Um, you may not want to, but if you do, if, you, if you're bored out of your mind and really like reading scientific papers, this book is amazing, Cognitive and Communitive Abilities of Gray Parrots. And she discovered that she could not only teach a parrot to talk, the parrot understood what it was saying. She had very clever ways of testing whether the parrot knew what it was talking about when it used language. She also found out that they could do things like color. So you could say, um, you could pull up two objects and say, which is the same? This is the other interesting, same and different is actually a complicated idea. Not many animals can understand the difference and what we mean by the concept of same and different. To do that, you have to have categories. You have to understand a category, put things in categories, and then separate out based on what category things relate to and don't relate to. It's actually really hard to do, especially to communicate those ideas because they're very abstract. So she taught this parrot to do things like, she'd hold up you know, two things and say, what's same? And the parrot would say, color. She'd hold up two different things, say, what's same? And it would say, shape. And it had, I had a three or four different categories that it could differentiate the same and different with. Um, they could do some basic math. There's all sorts of, of fascinating things that these gray parrots can do. In fact, one of the most fascinating things a gray parrot ever said, and it's not a good scientific, it's an anecdote, unfortunately, but, but one of the most fascinating things that they said is when they were teaching two parrots to talk, and they were teaching one in the presence of another because they would use the social conditioning to try to help them learn the, the ideas and the concepts. And one parrot turned to the other and said, No, say it right. That's wrong. Um, that's, that's kind of my favorite. And unfortunately, um, she, she fell in love with Alex, but she was treating him like a lab subject and he had to be very careful that all his interactions were controlled. And she really grieved when he died of a disease. He got aspergillosis, which is a disease a lot of birds will catch when kept in captivity um, and died. Um, so Alex taught us more about animal cognition than, than probably any other animal, animal that ever lived. And it's this great parrot here. Um, and this book is, is, is well worth reading. It's not actually the book that spur- sparked this entire thing, but it's well worth reading. Um, what's interesting about birds is not only are they so distant from us, they don't have um, cortical matter to the same degree we do. So the mammals solve complex problems with their cortex. You start asking about problems of intelligence, they're all solved with the cortex, it's how we do math. It's how we do these categories. It's, it's how we solve some of these problems. Gray parrots don't have a large cortex. In fact, they seem to be solving the problem with a completely different portion of the brain. So here we have intelligence 
that evolved using a different portion of the brain. That is incredibly interesting because it means that intelligence is more common than we thought. And then things get really weird because now we start talking about the cephalopods. A cephalopod, this is the book that, that spawned this. It's, it's, um, let me get it out. And uh, it's called Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness by Peter Godfrey Smith. I'll put that here. It's called Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness by Peter Godfrey Smith. I'll leave a copy up here if you're interested. Um, and he, he is an incredibly engaging author. This one is not a technical scientific work, but a, a, a popular science work that is really accessible to anyone. And y- you should read this book. The reason octopus cephalopods are so interesting is because we just jumped and doubled how far back we're talking. Um, we're now dealing with, uh, was it 300 million years ago? I think is the number. I don't have it in my notes for some reason. 300 million years ago is when these animals had a common ancestor with us. And they are amazing animals. And a huge portion of their metabolism is spent feeding a massive uh, brain, neural system. What's even more interesting is that their neurons are not laid out in anything like what ours are. We have a brain here, and we have essentially wires that, that kind of connect everything else up. And we have a few you know, processing units in our spine so that you can have reflex actions and that sort of thing. But all the complex processing happens here in one central area. Octopus have a distributed brain meaning their brain isn't in one place. Each arm has its own brain. And these brains are loosely interconnected. So if you think of our neural system as a political system, we have a dictator. Uh, Octopus have a democracy. There's maybe one way to kind of think about the difference. But you can imagine what would it be like to have a brain that big. Now, octopus are different from us in many ways. Cephalopods, all of them. They have short lives. They're highly predated upon. They don't, have, um, re- they don't have rearing situations. They leave their young and, and, and swim off and leave them to take care of themselves. They only live about a year. And so learning is not as important. So one of the things that makes things intelligent is an emphasis on learning. If you have a, a young that takes a long time to grow up and you have to teach it, you get a, you get a, a genetic predisposition to teach and to share. If you live a short amount of time, you don't have enough experiences. So let me, I should define learning. Learning means the ability to improve your, your performance on a task, a problem that you're trying to solve, with experience on that task. These animals learn, but their emphasis on learning is slightly different than ours because um, they don't live very long. So again, the utility of, of, of learning is lower, so a lot of their behaviors are more inbred. They also don't have parents that teach. So one has to wonder, what would the cephalopods have done if they just happened to live longer, to have evolved a situation in which they lived longer lives of social interaction with parents rearing and raising children? Their intelligence would have grown much faster, and they might have actually beaten us to the moon uh, in terms of technological development. Uh, but, but their you know, chance, to some extent, has placed them in this, this environment where we wouldn't expect them to even build large brains at all. 
In fact, no animal next to them on their side of the tree of life has a complex brain. None. They're an island of intelligence in kind of a sea of stupidity. I mean, we're talking slugs and mollusks and, and, and sea slugs and nautiluses. I mean, these, these animals are not the sharpest tools in the shed. They mostly just kind of float around and eat whatever they see in front of them. And if, an, if a predator attacks them, they, they pull inside their shell. Except the octopus and the sea slug and the cephalopod have no shell. And so they use their big brains, among other things, to avoid predation, to escape from predators, and to live long enough, hopefully, to procreate before they get eaten. And very few of them do. They have many, many children. Only a few of them survive. And the ones that survive are the ones that can avoid predation very well, which motivates the large brains. One of the things they do with their brains is camouflage. So an octopus has an infinitely morphable body, and he can morph itself into any shape it wants, and then it can assume any color it wants. It can use those color-changing abilities to communicate, to warn off predators, to, to, to warn off competitive, competing males when they fight for a female, something like this. But they can also use them to blend into their environment so you just can't see them. They just vanish. Uh, chameleons do that, but octopuses do it better. They are the king of, um, of camouflage, and they do that because each cell on, or they have a collection of cells that, that they use to modify color, and they're all along their body, and each of those cells has to be controlled with a neuron. And this is one of the reasons they build such big brains that take up so much of their metabolism. But if we look for our common ancestor with them, we end up somewhere down here, near the first bilaterians, uh, 600 million years ago. I was wrong. I think I said, I guess 300. 600 million years ago, and it probably was a, a slug of some sort. It may have had eyes, uh, but if it had a brain, it had about two or three maybe 100 neurons in said brain. And so it's very hard to argue that intelligence evolved, didn't evolve independently down both branches. The only argument you could make is that the evolution of a neuron at all was a rare event. And that once you evolve a neuron, lots of tree branches will develop intelligence. Um, there's reasons I don't think that's true, uh, but it at least shows that once you get a neuron, large, complex, intelligent brains evolve more than once. I should have said one more thing about octopus intelligence. If you try to put them in a, in a zoo, I mean, if you go to the aquarium, octopuses escape. They're kind of the, the escape artists. So how many of you have seen uh, Finding Dory? You seen that movie? You know the octopus there that's constantly helping Dory escape from the aquarium? that's based on a stereotype that is very real. Octopuses are really hard to keep in captivity because they keep getting out. And the reason they get out is because they will do everything from unscrew bolts, uh, spray water jets at electronics, um, and turn off lights uh, with switches, all sorts of just fascinating things. So they're incredibly intelligent animals. So if we start talking about neurons, uh, Again, our, our common ancestor probably didn't have many more than this. This is obviously not our common ancestor. It's extinct. But this is a similar sort of organism we have today. The uh, cannabis, I don't know how you say it, can or her, but I have no idea. Elegant this. Um, and it has, I think, 300 neurons, and we've mapped them all. 
And what's really fascinating about that is now that we've mapped them all, you can, you can download the program and run a simulation of a C. elegans brain on your desktop computer, and it will behave like a C. elegans worm. Because once you know what the neurons are, you know how they're interconnected, you can simulate their behavior, and you can actually create one of these worms uh, and run it on your desktop. And so there's its brain stolen from the worm and plugged into your computer. And it's only got 300 neurons. And so uh, this is the sort of thing that once you get, you end up with cephalopods on one side of the evolutionary tree and us on the other. Which means to me, I think complex intelligence, in, as we defined it earlier, complex brain that takes up a large part of your metabolism that was evolved because it gave you the survival advantage of being able to solve complex and flexible problems is common. Now, how common is technological intelligence? That's another question. It involves, for example, no one person here is smart enough to create technology. We're not a technologically advanced species because we are smart. We're a technologically advanced species because we work together in a collective, and we specialize and we trade. And that's what makes us so special. Not our individual intelligence, but our collective intelligence, which has to do with the evolution of cooperation, the evolution of communication, and the evolution of social creatures interacting within this concept of intelligence. And then that feeds back, because once you're in this environment, being individually smarter has an advantage, and then that has an advantage for the group, and there's some group selection going on as well. But we are intelligent because of our tribalism, is one way to say it. You remember the talk we had a few forums ago. Our tribalism essentially has driven our intelligence. And that has created technological intelligence as opposed to just individual intelligence. And then they can obviously ask the question, how common is that? And that one, again, is harder to answer. So if we go to the Drake equations, I think I can answer the how common is intelligence by saying, once you get here, you end up with a whole slew of complex intelligence. And then the remaining question is, how common is the genesis of life? And you could ask how common is kind of this, which is the, the bilaterians, how common is this? Which is, you know, the question of how common are neurons. Uh, and once you get there, the rest kind of falls out. Now, there's a reason I think that, that uh, the, the evolution of neurons isn't a rare event. Let me see if I can explain why. Uh, we have lots of single-celled organisms that communicate and transmit information. And the evolution of multicellular organisms has actually happened more than once. So... We've created multicellular organisms many times. Single cellular organisms communicate with each other. If you create a multicellular organism and you want to coordinate that organism's movements and, and behavior, you end up with a need to turn the communication between cells into communicate uh, that happens in single cellular organisms anyway and turn it into communication within the organism, and that is a neuron. And so again, this is the sort of thing that has happened multiple times because we have multiple lines of bacteria that communicate in different ways already. We have multiple lines of eukaryotes who communicate in different ways. We have eukaryotes that even can sense light. They have little rudimentary eyes all within a single cellular, cellular organism. So, and then they commun communicate with their neighbors. So again, this isn't, I think, uncommon. Which means that what we're left with is the fraction of planets with life the fraction with uh, technology, communicating. He calls it C because he means communicating civilizations, but technology. And then how long they live 
is relevant. We don't know how long they live, the fraction that communicate are technological, and the, and the fraction that ha- of planets that have life. But this one, at least, I think we can eliminate and say that's common. Once you get these, uh, this, this is almost inevitable, I think. So, if I had to guess, Fi is pretty near 1. So now let's turn to consciousness in all of five minutes that we have left, which is probably the most interesting of the questions. But I think, I think once you set this background of the evolution of intelligence, it's easier to approach. So I'm not going to try to answer any of the great questions of consciousness, obviously. But if I can raise the question and then say, can you see how this discussion of the evolution of intelligence tells you something about the evolution of consciousness? Go read the book, and then we've, we will have accomplished something. So <clears throat> this is the famous paper on consciousness that kind of set up the entire debate. What is it like to be a bat? by Thomas Nagel, which is also worth reading. It's not terribly long. But in that paper, he says, imagine that one has webbing in one's arms, which enables one to fly around at dusk and dawn, catching insects in one's mouth, that one has very poor vision and perceives the surrounding world by a system of reflecting high-frequency sound signals, and that one spends one's day hanging upside down by one's feet in an attic. Since so far as I can imagine this, which is not very far, it tells me only what it would be like for me to behave as a bat behaves. Now, that's an important point. You can imagine all the things a bat does. You can imagine you doing them, but it only tells you what it would be like for you to behave as a bat behaves. But I want to know what it's like to be a bat. You see the difference yet? Subtle. The bat perceives all those things that happen to it using a different brain. There's what it's like to see isn't about its different eye. That's about what light goes to the brain. It's about what the brain does with that light. Subtle, but really, really important. Can you see it? If your brain treats the light differently, it might be very different to see that way than it is to see this way. So imagine I were to take your uh, neurons that uh, perceive red, and all the neurons in your eye that perceive blue, and flip them, and, and take all those wires and just cross them. Whenever you saw, whenever something that I see as red hits your eyes, you would see blue, but you wouldn't know that it was different. You'd grow up your entire life calling red blue and blue red, and you'd have no concept that other people had a different experience when they saw color, because your brain would be different or the connections at this point between your eyes and your brain would be different, and you would never know that it was different. So when I ask, what is it like to be you, I actually don't know. Even when I talk to another human, my wife has synesthesia. It means when she has certain emotions, she sees colors. She sees colors. I'm not sure what that means, because I don't see colors that way, but she sees them, but she says she doesn't see them with her eye. What does it mean to see a color, but not with your eye? I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? I mean, maybe if you have synesthesia, you know what it means because when you have an emotion, you say, I'm seeing red. We even have that in our vocabulary because there's enough people with synesthesia that see red when they get angry that it's become a a kind of catchphrase. But I don't see literally red when I'm angry, and I didn't think anyone else did either. I thought it was just a turn of phrase until I met people who actually see red when they get mad. And I was like, what? That's so weird. What is it like to be Someone with synesthesia. Or if you, don't, if you have synesthesia, what is it like to be someone who doesn't have it? Well, that's much easier to answer than what is it like to be a bat. 
And what is it like to be a bat? Really isn't very hard, is it? Because a bat is a mammal. Its brain looks like ours. It has the same basic structure as ours. It has an amygdala. It has a frontal cortex, or it has cortical matter at least. Uh, it, its, its visual processing system is in roughly the same place. Its auditory processing system is roughly the same. What is it like to be a bat? Probably isn't a hard question. The right question is, what in the world is it like to be a cephalopod? Right? I mean, that's the real question. What is it like to be a cephalopod with a brain that is built on a completely different structure than ours with brains in its fingers that it communicates with? And we can try to wrap our head around that by thinking, well, we have a right and a left brain, and and really weird things happen to people when you separate them. So we get some idea that, that we have, to some extent, some separate parts of ourself, too, that we have to put together and try to make a cohesive whole with. But for the octopus and the cephalopods uh, and the cuttlefish, the problem is much bigger in, in that sense. That part of their personality would be much bigger because they would be divided in this way. So what is it like to be a thermostat? Now, I asked that question because I want to get at one more point that this whole evolutionary approach to consciousness provides. What is it like to be a thermostat? Probably nothing. I don't know that. There are actually some theories of consciousness that say kind of all matter is conscious on some basic level, and it just builds up as you make it more complex and connect it together. But probably nothing. It's probably like nothing to be a thermostat. And yet, a thermostat environment and acts. It acts and reacts to its environment. So that's what our brains are for. They take the inputs, the inputs get routed through our brains and out the outputs so that complex behavior can be produced from the inputs, which is our senses of touch, taste. So a thermostat has an input and it has an output, but it has no really complex processing in between. Therefore, it's probably like nothing to be a thermostat. Um, But when does that change? The philosopher William James made the point, and I think it's a good one, that consciousness should not be a switch that is either on or off. It has to grow from a single-celled organism that behaves much like a thermostat to us, down the evolutionary tree, not in a moment when the switch is flipped, but in a continuous, gradually shifting fashion, so that you move from an unconscious, single-celled organism to a conscious me, gradually. And the same is true when you talk about how you grew from a, from a single-celled organism that probably wasn't conscious in my mother's womb to me today. So both our evolutionary path and our individual fetal development path grow from unconscious to conscious in a gradual way instead of in a yes-no way. So what is it like to be a worm, a C. elegans? Probably not much, but probably more than it was like to be a thermostat. What is it like to be a C. elegans living inside of a computer? Now, my personal approach to this particular philosophical question is, if it, if it creates the same behavior from the same inputs, it must have the same consciousness between the input and the output which means the simulated C. elegans is as much, a lot, as much conscious as the C. elegans simulation is as much conscious as the C. elegans 
originally was, and that's probably biased by the fact that I'm a computer scientist, but that's my personal belief, is that the simulated C. elegans is every bit as conscious as the real C. elegans. And, and what is it like if I were to take the C. elegans and put it inside a, a Lego robot? Somebody actually did that. They took the C. elegans simulation and gave it a Lego robot body, and dang it, the darn thing kind of wiggles around the house and behaves like a worm. It's fascinating to watch, by the way. There's YouTube videos. Go see a C. elegans in a, in a Lego body. By the way, if you've ever watched Battlestar Galactica, this is how you get Cylons. Right? So <laughs> you can't tell whether I should be excited about this or, or nervous. But anyway... Um, and then the real question, you know, what is it like to be a squid? What is it like to be an octopus? And what is it like to be a cuttlefish? The three animals in the cephalopod camp that are intelligent. Now, um, another interesting point I should have made earlier and I forgot is that we believe that the, um, the squid and the cephalopods developed intelligence independently because their common ancestor probably wasn't intelligent. So not only do we have, you know, multiple, we have multiple branches of intelligence down the cephalopod branch. I should have mentioned that. Um, all right, this is my Lego robot. Her name is Dottie. Uh, and I did for my master's thesis uh, reinforcement learning, where I, I kind of gave positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement to a little dot that moved around on my screen. And, you know, it would go here and it would get negative reinforcement, so it would go over here and get positive reinforcement. And it learned some complex behavior just to, in an attempt to maximize this reward structure. So now I can ask the question, what is it like to be Dottie, especially if I give her a Lego robot body, which I'm actually in the process of building, because I want to take my master's thesis and plug her into this Lego robot and see what happens uh, instead of making her a little dot on my screen, which is why my wife named her Dottie. Um, so this is my first attempt at, well, my second attempt at giving her a decently shaped robot body. We'll see how she behaves. I'll let you know if anyone's curious. This is the sort of thing I do in my spare time because I'm kind of weird. Um, now I want to end on a more sobering note. One of the reasons we care about the SETI, the Drake equations, isn't just because we're interested in SETI, although some of us might be. Um, they're real practical implications. Uh, this is Nick Bostrom. He wrote a, 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 the great, what's called the Great Filter Argument. The paper is called um, Why I Hope That the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Finds Nothing. Uh, and, and what he essentially says is, if you look over here where you have really complex civilizations, it would be hard to imagine that such a civilization exists in the universe and we can't see it. It should leave visible traces from Dyson spheres around stars to all sorts of just, we ought to be able to look up into the sky and see them. And they ought to, frankly, they ought to be here by now. And so what he says is there's something, if we assume that the formation of life is common over here at this end, then something between this end and this end makes everybody go extinct. Because something prevents us from ending up over here or somebody would be here already. That's his argument. Now, if he's right, then the chances that we will destroy ourselves are relatively high. Unless the great filter, something that prevents things from progressing, is behind us, not in front of us. One place it could be behind us is the evolution of intelligence. And I don't believe it's there. I think that's one of the things we've showed today and talked about. The evolution of intelligence is not the great filter. That means it's either the evolution of technological intelligence, which I don't think is it either, or it's the formation of life itself on a life-bearing planet. Because if it isn't there, then it's probably here. Uh, which is another tieback. I began with Fermi, where is everybody? And I'm going to end a researcher at Los Alamos National Lab involved in the Manhattan Project. 
and I'm going to end where I began. And that is that if the filter isn't behind us, then it's probably right in front of us. Uh, or, or nearly in front of us, because we're not that far away from a species that could leave our home and travel outward. And so that means the filter can't be very far in front of us unless it's behind us. So hopefully that has a little bit of practical implications built into something uh, otherwise abstract. I believe we should be terribly careful with the technology we've created because there is a chance that we're standing right next to a precipice of some vast proportion, which answers Fermi's question, where is everybody? And if that's the case, we need to be very careful if we want to be one of the few who make it past. So, thank you. I've got a copy up here. You're welcome to come ch- uh, check it out. And I, again, this book is worth reading. Uh, we, I would have loved to spend more time talking about consciousness, and he, he spends a lot of time on that. It's very interesting stuff. So come, come check it out, and, and I encourage you to buy one and read one.